Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. If you would stand to your feet, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. I'll give you a moment to turn there or to slide there on your phone. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. This is the Word of God. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So, regardless of your age, your ethnicity, your social status, your financial status, your many talents or lack thereof, in spite of your strengths and weaknesses, no matter how many friends or family you have right now, regardless of whether or not you despise religion or you're a faithful believer in Christ, we all have a common enemy And that enemy is death. There's an English poet by the name of Thomas Gray. And he wrote, quote, The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty and wealth ever gave await alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. And the reality for us is this, that although we often think the world revolves around us and that we're going to all live late into our 90s, this may not be so because we know that life is fragile. And things like talent, beauty, power, wealth, fame are but illusions in the grand scheme of things, and they will shatter the day we take our last breath. The hope of believers should not be in such things as these. We need to be heavenly-minded as we consider all of the things that we're given. That's why we, we cannot take any glory for ourselves. None of it is because of us. And folks, you have to understand there are no promises as to when that last day for you and for I will be. It could be today. It could be 20 years from now. It could be 50 years from now. We know and trust, as the song said earlier, that God has allotted our days And we will leave this earth 
when he wills it to be so. Ours is eternal hope. So as scripture says, we do not mourn as the world mourns. Chapter 15 happens to be the longest chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we found in the last several weeks as we survey the passages prior to ours today, in verses 1 through 11, if you'll just scan there, he gives the evidence for Christ's resurrection. In verses 12 through 19, Paul examines the hopelessness and the implications of denying the resurrection. In verses 20 through 28, he covers the order of the resurrection, outlining the plan. Remember Christ, the first fruits, and then those who are Christ's at his coming. In verses 29 through 34, the blessings of the resurrection in this life are described. The future resurrection of faithful saints inspires others toward salvation. So it wins souls. Your example, when you live a godly life and you die and you go on to be with the Lord, people are inspired by your life. They're inspired toward faith. And of course, the resurrection motivates all of us for service as we've been created for good works, as Ephesians 2.10 says. And then it solidifies us in the faith, pushing us onward toward further sanctification, submitting our life to the Spirit of God and being sanctified by His hand. In verses 35 through 49, we covered last Sunday, Paul describes how the body will be laid in the earth like a seed, and what will come forth out of the grave will be radically different than the bodies that you have now and the bodies that are laid in the grave. They'll be completely different. This last section of the chapter is the crescendo, if this were a song. And in fact, um, several songs have been written about this particular passage. One you've heard b- uh, before, I know, it's Handel's Messiah. And this speaks of the glorious moment of triumph when we are changed forever resurrected into our eternal form, a form, as Scripture has stated, and I've stated over and over, much different than this body that we have now. So look with me at verse 50. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. I remember a discussion that I was involved in about four years ago Uh, I was having this discussion with another believer, and um, he was well-studied and knew his stuff. Um, But he, as I was speaking, he interrupted me, and he said, we can't can't take our bodies to heaven with us, like he interrupted. And and he denied the fact that there would be a bodily resurrection. He believed that we would be spirit beings that just seemed like physical beings. And... um, so that was, the, that was the passage that he quoted to me. We can't, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. But that's a perfect example of misreading the text. Or at the very least, a lack of understanding concerning what Paul had just said in the verses prior. Remember, he's making his point to those who believed or had been taught that you would rise up again. You would raise up in the same body that you were buried in. So if you're 90 years old, you're going to have a 90-year-old body. Of course, that sounds ridiculous. Flesh and blood is not going to inherit the kingdom. It's going to be much different. We are going to have a body that will be flesh and spirit. It'll be powered by the Spirit of God. Jesus' body was flesh and blood as well. 
But even his body had to be transformed before he could return to the presence of God. See, he was remade and transformed into his glorified, uh, I guess his glorified uh, state, okay? Do you recall Christ's prayer in John 17, 5? I've quoted this many times. If you've read there, it's right before his, his uh, crucifixion. John 17, 5. He says, quote, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Glorify me again the way I was before I ever stepped foot on this planet. The human physiology is corruptible, no doubt about it. It's not suited for eternal glory, nor can it abide the holy presence of God. Therefore, it cannot inherit the incorruptible. Your body is corruptible. But Paul just stated, if you'll look back there in verses 42 through 44, just, just glance back there, it's sown a corruptible body, but it's raised an incorruptible body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body, a supernatural body. Do you see? So we know now that the body that's raised from the grave is no longer flesh and blood. It's no longer corruptible. So then the next obvious question is, what about believers who are alive uh, at this time? What's going to happen to their bodies in this moment? Paul, of course, has an answer for this as well. And the deal is, if we're alive in Christ, we're not going to be left out and we're not going to be left behind. We just have to wait for the dead in Christ to be raised first. So we have to wait our turn, right? But you don't have to worry about it because it's not going to take too long at all. I want to show you here. Paul says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now this word mystery we've talked about a lot. It's not a puzzle that needs to be solved. That's not what it's talking about. The word mysterion, where we get the word mystery, means there's a truth that is being revealed. And Paul is revealing a truth here. So what is the truth in this passage that's being revealed? That not everyone will sleep or die, and that when Jesus comes to get his bride, those who are alive in Christ will change. They'll transform instantaneously. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Now, this will take place, as I said, in a single moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which some have proposed is the, the speed of light. Some have proposed it's the speed of sight. And I've even heard pastors uh, make the case that it's the time it takes for the image that we see to get from the front of the eyeball to the back of the eyeball. It's in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know about all that, but all I know is it's going to be faster than you and I can imagine. And there's some confusion, though, about this last trumpet that's mentioned here. Uh, the, is this the last trumpet ever? Is this the last trumpet for the church? Is this the last trumpet in a series of trumpet blasts? Or is this the last trumpet for this particular group of believers, that each set of believers, depending upon which resurrection, you will hear a last trumpet. So there's confusion, obviously. And upon careful study, we find that although the language in this passage is similar 
to other passages about trumpets. They don't fit or harmonize, and I want to give you an example to kind of explain this to you. I believe there's a lot of evidence that points to this trumpet being a much different trumpet than the one we read about in Revelation chapter 11. If you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at chapter 4 real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 16 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. I want to illustrate this with this particular passage that harmonizes perfectly with our text today. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So here it's described as the trumpet of God. Continuing verse 16, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now notice the trumpet sounds with the shout of an angel. There's no mention of other trumpet blasts that take place before it. This is described as the trumpet of God, whereas in Revelation, an angel sounds the trumpet. Also note, Jesus does not set foot on the earth. It says that we're caught up to meet him in the air among the clouds. He's coming for his saints. And from that point on, we will always be with the Lord. What, what good news. Like for us at that moment, it's over. No more sin, pain, sorrow, death, all that stuff. It's done. Incredible. And so what we see here is he says, look forward to this and comfort one another with these words. Remind one another that this is yet to come and that you have this to look forward to. But this trumpet and what follows is clearly one of hopeful anticipation. It's life. It's blessing. It's the glorification of the saints. But the trumpet in Revelation 11, it's sounded by an angel. And a resurrection does take place in chapter 11 of Revelation, but it's before the trumpet is sounded, not after. So it, it actually comes before. And the trumpet is the final blast in Revelation of six prior blasts. So there's seven altogether. In fact, this trumpet is accompanied by a great earthquake and a hailstorm in which tens of thousands of people are slain, the Bible says, in God's rage. And tribulation believers themselves at this time are struck with terror because of the upheaval taking place on the earth and just the enormity of God's wrath at this time. Now, let me just repeat that for a moment and see if that kind of harmonizes with what we're talking about today. There will be a great earthquake and hailstorm. Tens of thousands will be slain in God's rage. In the great upheaval, believers themselves at this time will be struck with terror. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Does that sound comforting to you, believer? You see how it doesn't really fit? It doesn't harmonize. On one occasion, it speaks of life and blessing and comfort. And the other occasion speaks of death and judgment and terror. In, just in awe of God's wrath. And our passage today speaks of Christ returning to receive His church. Okay? Let's continue, verse 53. For the corruptible, this corruptible must put on the incorruptible. And this mortal 
must put on immortality. In that moment, we see in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed, transformed, the corruptible body will put on the incorruptible. Remember last week we learned that Paul described the immaterial part of us, the, uh, the, uh, the soul and spirit of man. He described that when we die and we leave our body behind, he described that as naked, that we're naked. We don't be in the afterlife, in eternity, naked, okay? We, we need a body. Well, this phrase, put on, was used in the same way that we would use put on your coat, put on your shirt, okay? In the same way, we will put on immortality. We'll put it on. Verse 54, but when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So here's an aspect of Christ's work that's often confused. As I mentioned last week, this over-realized eschatology. When you reach into the future and you try to lay hold of future promises and you try to make them uh, mean something today. We have the spiritual reality and the hope of looking forward to those things, but it doesn't mean that they are reality today. And that's the case with this passage of Scripture. I want to clarify this if I can. When Christ resurrected... He shattered the power of death over what was his mortal body. Romans 6, 9, if you want to jot that down, Romans 6, 9 says, Death no longer is master over him. So he defeated death, and and death had no power over what was his mortal body. He was raised from the dead in the power of the Spirit, and his, and his, uh, his body was transformed. However, death is still the enemy of you and I. It's still the enemy of you and I. Think about it. We still deal with the fallenness of this world. Each of us still have a date ahead with death. And while we still remain, death steals our loved ones from us. It severs our family ties. It causes us to deal with a great deal of grief having been separated for loved ones, the people that we dearly love. And though we do not grieve, as I mentioned, as the world grieves, if you've ever lost someone, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's very hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around someone who was here today and tomorrow they're gone. Difficult, difficult to wrap your mind around. But we as believers have no need to fear death. But in this fallen world... It does still violate what we know to be that spiritual reality of our eternal hope. We are still going to lose the people we love on this earth. And for us, we'll see the fruition of this change at the rapture. Our mortal will put on immortality. For everyone else, there's, there's a, a few different resurrections in Scripture, but there's this final resurrection in which at that point... Um, It's over for death. But all those who are in Christ will see the full reality. This is the victorious final day. Notice that word, when. That's important. When we put on the immortal, death has no more power over us, and he never will again. After the final resurrection, we read in Revelation 20, 14, that death is thrown into the lake of fire. 
that death is no more at that point. It'll be the end of death. But here Paul quotes the Old Testament passage from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. Isaiah 25 and verse 8, he's quoting the Old Testament, which reads, He, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death for all time. He, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death for all time. It is a final victory. It's a decided victory. And then Paul quotes Hosea 13, 14. Hosea 13, 14. When he says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul then writes, Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Sin is the sting of death. And I want to try to uh, explain this to you in a way that maybe you can understand. Anybody out there been stung by a bee before? Yeah, just about everybody. Well, you know that when they sting you, they leave their stinger in you. And the bee will fly away, and later on, at some point, the bee will die, okay? But it leaves its stinger in you. Well, Paul is implying that death left its stinger, but it left its stinger in Christ, and that death is now awaiting his own demise. Jesus took the sting of death himself, which is our sin. The sting of death is our sin. And we're told clearly in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That's your comeuppance. That's your payment. The wages of your sin is death. But He took that sting. He paid those wages so you and I will never have to bear that sting. Paul then goes on to explain that the power of the sin, the power of sin is the law. And God is perfect in His infinite wisdom, His glory. He's, and the law itself is a perfect reflection of who God is. Just think about that for a moment. If a person could live by the law perfectly, that would reflect the nature of God. So the law reflects God's nature. And God's law is His standard. And it's holy. And Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no way that you and I can keep the law ourselves. It's impossible. And so there's a great truth in all of this. If you've fallen short of God's glorious standard, then you yourself, and that's everybody, by the way, as we just learned, you yourself are marked for the sting of death. You are snake bit, as they say. Have you ever heard that? that you've been snake bit, it pretty much means you have no hope. And I recalled in my study, I recalled the Israelites in Numbers 21. If you recall that story in Numbers 21, they were bitten by the fiery serpents that God caused the Israelites had sinned and God caused these fiery serpents to come in among the Israelites and they were snake bit and they were dying. And they fell short of God's standard. So they went to Moses and they begged for mercy. They realized that they had sinned against God. They confessed their sin. They asked Moses to somehow intercede uh, on their behalf to God so that they might be healed. And that's the story that's unfolding. But then God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. 
And then the people who believed would lift their eyes to that serpent on the pole. And of course, that serpent represents their sin against God. That's what it represented. When they looked up, they were acknowledging their own sin. And when they looked on it in faith, they would be healed. They would be saved from the serpent bite. And what a beautiful picture of the cross this is. Christ being lifted up between heaven and earth before all men. And when we look upon Him and believe, we're healed. By His stripes, we are healed. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you've heard this before. Wonderful passage. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, this is so important to get right here. The verse doesn't mean that Jesus became sin as many uh, misinformed preachers today talk about. Jesus didn't become sin on the cross. It means that He died as a sin offering on our behalf, just like the sin offering in the Old Testament. And the sting of death, that meant certain doom for you and I, He took that sting upon Himself. He took the guilt for you and I upon Himself once and for all. But what's more, He exchanged that sting. He exchanged it. He traded our death and our doom for His righteousness. He traded it out, giving us this eternal hope that we have. And that's why Paul writes this victorious passage here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory in Jesus. Amen? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did what was impossible for you and I to do in two different ways. Jesus satisfied the standard of the law in living a perfectly sinless life. He lived a perfect life, an impeccable reflection of His Father's glory. And then on the cross, Jesus took the sting of death. He endured the wrath of His Father, that wrath that was reserved for you and I, and He won the victory over sin and death forever. Amen? What a trade. What a hope that we have. He won us the victory. And in light of that remarkable truth... Look, folks, we should live our lives for Him. We should pour out our lives for Him and leave everything on the field, as they say, to use a a football uh, analogy. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So I say to you this morning, what I want you to see from this passage, the encouragement that we have, it's all about Him. It's not about us. We just submit to Him. We submit to His Word. He's telling us, be steadfast, which actually means to be seated, to be firmly seated, just as you are right now. Okay? Be settled in and and get ready. And then He says, immovable, which actually means immobile. Be immobile, and, and it's, there's an intensity. So you could say, sit down and buckle up. Sit down and strap in, okay? And interestingly, those first two words 
point to that fact of being motionless. And it might be confusing at first when you consider the very next um, instruction from Paul is to be always abounding. Well, how can we sit down and strap in and then be always abounding? How does that work? Well, there's a beauty to that. Number one, it's Christ and, and the work of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us. But we have to sit down and strap in. We have to submit to the Spirit of God, okay? But here's the way I see it. It means you stay on track. You stay on track. Sit down, strap in, and get ready for the ride. Do never ever veer away from what you know to be God's will. Plant yourself firmly in God's Word. Stay the course and don't ever veer to the right or to the left. If for a moment you believe you're getting out of line with what Scripture says, even one degree... Man, submit yourself to God, repent, and get back on track. That's what we're talking about here. Don't quit. Always abounding, moving forward, always growing. And that's how we see in Second Peter, the proof of being in Christ is that you're always abounding. You're growing. There are these different attributes that are being added to you as you grow in Christ, and you're sanctified in the power of the Spirit. We see this. I think of, when I think of this, I think of a roller coaster, you know. Many of you guys, probably most of you have been on roller coasters. You sit down, you strap in, keep your hands and feet inside of the the vehicle at all times, right? Um, But you shoot out of the gate, man, like really fast. And then whatever the ride brings, you're you're there for the ride. (laughs) Like you're on it. There's no getting off. You're on the roller coaster. And I like that analogy for this passage of, of Scripture. Whatever the ride brings, folks, we stay on track. We don't ever walk away. We don't ever give up. We don't ever take our seatbelt off any more than we take our seatbelt off and jump off the top of the, the highest point of a roller coaster. We're on this for life. We're pouring ourselves out for life. And he says, you have to know that your labor, the trials, the sorrow, the hard work, the pain, the broken hearts... None of it will be in vain. None of it will be meaningless because we're doing it for the Lord. We're doing it for the right reasons. The secret is, again, that our work is all done in the power of the Spirit. He created us for good works. He created us to serve Him, to love Him, to worship Him. That's our calling in life. It's our highest purpose in life is to worship Him and glorify Him. So... If we do this together, we do it all for His glory. And here's the kicker. When God's doing it, it cannot fail. It cannot fail. So stay strapped in. No matter how wild the ride gets, stay strapped in. Every ounce we do this for His glory. And my ask of you today as we grow, as this little church continues to grow... Let's do this together. We can all jump on the same coaster, okay? A local church, we submit to His will. We submit to His way in our lives. Did you hear what I said there? We submit to His will and we submit to His way. We submit to His presence in our lives daily and we submit to His power to whatever extent He offers that in His sovereign plan. We submit to His rule in our lives. He sits on the throne of our hearts every single day. He reigns in the lives of our family, 
as we lead them spiritually and guide them spiritually. It's His will, His way, His presence, His power, His rule, and His reign. So we can do this together, and together we can do it all for His glory. Amen? It's all for Jesus. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.